If you'd please open your Bibles to Luke 5, 27. Luke 5, verse 27, it's page 1023 of the Red Pew Bible. This morning we're beginning Dinners with Jesus. It's a new sermon series. It's a short one, just six weeks. It's a sermon series looking at the Gospel of Luke, in particular looking at the dinners, the meals that Luke records Jesus being a part of. Now, Luke actually records more than six. We're looking at six particular ones, and we're going to take them in the order in which Luke presents them. And so this morning, Luke chapter 5, verse 27, here in a moment. I suspect it is unlikely that any of us have experienced the exact scenario I'm about to uh, portray, but I also suspect that it's easy enough for all of us to imagine it. So your family moves in the middle of your freshman year in high school, and it's lunchtime on your first day at your new school. You've exited the line, and you're standing there with your tray, staring out at a vast sea of teenage angst. Who you choose to eat with could define you for the rest of your time at this school. To sit alone would be awful. It would mark you as a friendless outcast. But there is something worse than eating alone. You could eat at the wrong table? What if you accidentally sat with the math club? Or worse yet, the chess club? He said, as a member of both, what if you ate with those kids? The ones scorned by the rest of the school. Now, as adults, we can laugh at that scenario, but it would have been a very real issue for a teenager facing it. Group identity matters, and very few things mark identity more than eating together. Meals matter for more than just the the nourishment found in them. Who we eat with is who we are a part of. And Jesus ate with all the wrong people. Jesus' dining habits caused no end of scandal for him and his friends. As we will see in the weeks to come, it's not just that Jesus ate with the wrong people. Even when he ate with the right people, with the in crowd, He did so in all the wrong ways. But it was not out of ignorance. It's not as if Jesus did not understand how these things worked. It's not as if Jesus was unaware of the social rules at play. Quite on the contrary. Jesus did these things precisely because of the social rules that governed his society. He spun mealtimes into ministry times. He spun meals into opportunities to teach important truths. And this morning's text is an example of such an occasion. And so together, let's take a look at Matthew 5, verses 27 through 32. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi 
you know him as Matthew, author of the first gospel. Jesus saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Thus ends the reading of God's word, the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. Let's seek his help in understanding it. Lord, show us the message of this text. Show us what Jesus was trying to teach on that day. And as we see it, work in our hearts faith to believe it. We pray this in his name. Amen. Who we eat with often turns out to be who we are. We know this intuitively. Our angst-ridden teenager in the school cafeteria, she knew it and we know it. To eat with someone is, generally speaking, a sign of community with them. That we collectively know this to be true can be seen even in our entertainment Think about some of the big hit TV shows over the years. In the 90s, the hit show Friends, practically every episode, showed them gathered to eat and drink together at the uh, Central Perk, the coffee shop. The show Frasier, he and his brother and their social circle were constantly gathered at Cafe Nervosa. It doesn't seem to matter what show it is, Eating and drinking together is prominent. The big hit of the last decade, the Big Bang Theory, every episode showed them eating at the university cafeteria or at the restaurant of the day or at the living room uh, coffee table. Whether it's the mess tent in MASH or the Keaton family kitchen from Family Ties or Luke's diner in, 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 in Gilmore Girls, these shows all have a prominent place for eating and drinking. And every single one of them had episodes, multiple episodes, that centered on this question. Who do we eat or drink with? And what does that mean? What are the implications of that for our social circle? Those were comedies, and so they tend to spin it in that direction. But it demonstrates the reality that we collectively, the reason we resonate with those shows is because we understand the truth of the implications of shared meals. You may be familiar with the long-running show, uh, currently running, um, Blue Bloods. Every episode, there is at least one scene of a family dinner, and the message is clear. If you are part of this family, then you are a part of this dinner, and vice versa. Identity can be found in who we eat with. Now, I've tried to illustrate that through pop culture, but the thesis stands on more solid ground than that. Noted British uh, 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 anthropologist Mary Douglas 
and she's, she's been dead for a while now, but she did some important work in the middle of the 20th century that still stands today. In one of her more important works, she showed how every culture, every culture, the, uh, uh, sets its boundaries, sets its identity in part by its meals and the rituals that surround them. She demonstrated that every people group across time and place uses meals as group markers. In a later work that she published, she particularly focused on the dietary laws of the book of Leviticus. And she demonstrated they were not about hygiene, but about group boundaries. I don't have time, nor do I have the skill, to re-argue her point But I can quickly offer you this bit of evidence to help convince you she was right. You see, if we assume that the dietary laws of Leviticus were about hygiene, then we've got these other laws there that we don't know what to do with. If it's about hygiene, then why did God forbid fabrics sewn with two different, I'm sorry, clothes sewn with two different fabrics? What's that got to do with hygiene? If it's about hygiene, why did God forbid them from sowing two different seeds in the same field? What's that got to do with hygiene? But if you understand what Mary Douglas understood about the book of Leviticus, it's not about hygiene. It's about group identity. It's about I've called you out as a people unto myself and made you holy. You need to stay separated from the other peoples. Ah, Now separating the fabrics makes sense. Now separating the crops in the field, that makes sense. And being separated and marked by what we eat makes sense. You see, what it was, was the policing of the individual body became a way to police the corporate body. Meals matter. What we do at them and who we eat them with matters. By the time of Jesus, this principle really had kind of kicked into overdrive, this idea of identity through eat. There were a gazillion and one regulations about mealtime. And for that reason, mealtime had become a great way to show off how good a rule keeper you were. Making a public display of hand washing, plate washing, even furniture washing and blessing All of this marked you as an exquisite rule keeper and thus as an exemplary member of that society. But to really make your mark, it wasn't enough to do all of these things. You needed to do all of these things in front of other people. You needed to show off to the A-listers of society that you knew how to keep all of the rules. New Testament scholar Scott Barchi says it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century of our era. Mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. You see, all the Pharisees ate together because they were all unified on what it took to eat rightly together. It marked you as groups. Getting the rules right at mealtime was a big deal. By the way, we're not as far removed from that as we might like to think. There are still things 
that we know are not acceptable. Almost every uh, uh, fellowship meal we have here at the church, there is a piece of lettuce left in the salad bowl, one roll left on the roll, because nobody can take the last one because it's not socially acceptable. We know there are unwritten rules to corporate meals. So, very near, very near the top of all of those mealtime do's and don'ts was this. Don't smoke, don't chew, and don't go with girls that do. Well, they had a different version of it, but it was basically the same thing. At the top of the list was about the company you kept, about who you ate with. And one of those was Jews did not eat with Gentiles, period. It was practically unheard of in Jesus' day that a Jew would have a meal with a Gentile. But there were people worse than Gentiles. After all, Gentiles couldn't help the fact that they were Gentiles. They couldn't do anything about it. But a wantonly bad Jew? Now, that was a seriously corrupt person by their own choice. Jews who chose to live lives of sin... Jews who chose to live lives defying God's law willingly, they represented a whole other level of filth and treachery. They were even more reviled than Gentiles. Women, women bottomed out, morally and socially speaking, when they became prostitutes. Yes, all women sinned, But the adulterous wife usually had her affair in secret. The slothful seamstress, well, maybe we all know who not to take our garments to, but still she does it behind closed doors. But since there were no hookup apps on your smartphone back then, the only way for a prostitute to drum up business was to be public about her sin. It was for her quite literally the the only way to let people know that she was in the business. Thus, prostitutes were women who leaned into their sin, embracing it, marketing it, flaunting it. Prostitutes advertised their sin so that they could sin more. Oi! And since the prostitute had chosen to make her sin a matter of public knowledge, it was considered fair game to openly scorn such a woman and to shame her publicly. Now, the astute listener, and I've come to understand you are all very astute, the astute listener may be thinking to themselves, great, pastor, that's an interesting treatise on the social status of prostitutes in the first century Near East. But what does it have to do with our text? Well, everything. You see, Jesus is in a room full of prostitutes. Luke describes the dinner guests in verse 29 as tax collectors and others. He was being circumspect. The Pharisees, well, they're more blunt when they ask the disciples in verse 30, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? There was really, generally, only one group about whom you could make such an open judgment. Because there was only one group 
who was so collectively, universally known to be sinners. For the sin of everyone else was more or less kept in private. That the Pharisees refer to sinners is universally accepted by scholars and commentators as a reference to prostitutes. That's who could be called sinners because those are the people everybody knew to be sinners because they put their sin on full display for all to see. This is a party full of prostitutes. It is a party full of sinners. So now we circle back around to their dinner companions, the tax collectors. By the way, and not for nothing, it's actually relevant. The word companion, it comes from the Latin, come panis. Panis means bread. Panera bread is literally bread bread. Okay? Panis means bread. Come, actually you're more familiar with the prefix co, meaning with, for whatever reasons in Latin grammar rules, and I don't understand them, if the root starts with a P, B, or M, you don't use co, you use come. But it still means with or together. Come panis, with bread. Your companion is someone you eat with. Isn't that interesting? We're talking about the fact that meals identify at groups. And here we are seeing that even our language acknowledges that reality. Anyway, so we have the prostitutes and we have their dinner companions, the tax collectors. Uh, 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 I'm losing my place here. Anyway, okay. So the prostitutes, if they were the lowest echelon of femininity, then tax collectors represented the very dregs of the men in that society. You see, they were openly conspiring with God's sworn enemies. Now, that's a strong statement. It's not what I'm making. I'm not making that judgment myself, but rather I'm trying to reflect what the culture of that day would have believed. Tax collectors were conspiring with God's enemies. Let me put that into some historical context. First of all, you have to recognize, most of you probably know this, but you have to know that Palestine at this time was under the control of Rome, the Roman Empire. But it had only been so for a few years, probably by this time about 60 years. So there are still people who can remember a free Palestine, an unconquered Palestine. And so they are still very much resenting Roman rule. And zealous Jews uh, uh, equated this with God's displeasure. They wanted to see the restoration of the Davidic dynasty as an indication of God's pleasure with them. They wanted to see a son of David back on the throne in Jerusalem. Since Rome was in the way of that, Rome was the enemy. And as a necessary corollary to their worldview... God's Messiah must necessarily throw off Rome in order to save God's people. By the way, it's not just the Pharisees who thought this way. What do we see in Acts 1 after the resurrection? What is the first thing the disciples say to Jesus? Is now the time of the kingdom. We've been waiting patiently. Are you going to reestablish your throne in Jerusalem now? 
Even the disciples were still confused about what Jesus had come to do. So God's Messiah had to be somebody who was going to throw off Roman rule. Now, hold that in the back of your head. We'll come back around to it. Here's another little fact you need to know. When the Davidic dynasty fell back in uh, right around 600 BC, some couple hundred years later, there was within Judaism this subgroup of lay people that arose with the thinking, their desire was, they, they, they read the prophets and they realized that God was punishing Israel for her faithlessness and their logic said this, if we uh, uh, fastidiously keep the law of God, we can make God happy, we can restore his favor to us and he will therefore set us free from our overlords and oppressors. No, get, don't get me wrong. Oh, by the way, they became known, sometime around 200 B.C., they became known as the Pharisees. And don't get me wrong, keeping God's law is a good thing. Being covenant keepers is a good thing. Where they get it wrong is they think that's what they have to do to impress God and make him happy. That's where they get it wrong. But the Pharisees were zealous about keeping God's law in order to restore the Davidic dynasty, to restore God's kingdom on earth. So now if you're a Pharisee and you've been giving up all the fun in life, you've been living your life very carefully and fastidiously, keeping all the rules of God and all the added rules that the elders had heaped on top of the law of God, and you're doing all of this because you believe it's the hope of Israel by which you're going to throw off your oppressors, these tax collectors, they're siding with your oppressors. You can see now why they weren't particularly liked. The tax collectors, they worked for Rome. They took your money to finance your enemy's oppression of you. Oh, and by the way, tax collectors, almost all of them were crooked. Because the records, well, they're the ones who kept them. So they cooked the books. And they said you owed more than you really did. And they collected 2,500 in taxes from you, but they gave only 2,000 to Rome and they pocketed the other 500. And there was nothing you could do about it. Because they had the official records. Imagine for a moment that we were under the control of some foreign power. We've been selling treasury bills to China for years and years and years. Let's say China decides to repossess us. And we are now under the control of China. And you have to pay your taxes. Nobody likes paying taxes, but how much worse would it be if you were paying taxes to somebody working for China who had taken over your country. On top of that, the person's crooked. But if you challenge him, he will throw you over to the Chinese legal system, and we all know how that would go. You've got no choice. But what really galls you, this is not somebody from China doing this. He's an American. He's supposed to be one of us and he's helping them. Can you begin to see why they didn't like tax collectors? 
does it begin to come together, it would be really easy to revile such a person, to hate a person like that. So at this dinner party at which we find Jesus and his disciples being, uh, uh, this, this party being thrown by Matthew, uh, a Levi, and Levi himself, a tax collector, well, he invites the people he knows. He invites his social circle, other tax collectors. So there are now tax collectors there, and there are prostitutes there. Now stop for a moment and think about what this means. Let's put one and one together. This is a room full of wealthy scumbags and hookers. Matthew is not throwing, Levi is not throwing a respectable dinner party. These are rich, self-absorbed men and hired women. Let's modernize it a bit. Picture a scene out of, I don't know, Miami Vice, NCIS, FBI, whatever undercover show agent you've ever watched, whatever movie you've ever seen. This is a palatial mansion paid for with drug money. And sitting around this lovely, beautiful, amazing house are men who participate in all sorts of illegal activities. Smuggling drugs, smuggling humans, perhaps. Earning all of their money illegally. And they're drinking top-shelf liquor. And they're eating pulled pork sandwiches while you're eating gefilte fish. And while you're hanging out with your respectable, if somewhat boring, wife, they got a room full of hookers. This is a detestable scene. And it is highly likely that all the debauchery that we expect to find in such a setting, in such a party, probably broke out. Not because that's the way Jesus wanted it, but that's because that's the way these people were. Suddenly, the Pharisees' collective consternation is a little more understandable. Suddenly, we can relate to why they're bewildered and baffled. And to rub salt in their wound, it's this guy who's been making credible claims that he might be the Messiah of God. He seems to be fulfilling all the prophecies about God's Messiah. He's even working miracles. And the Pharisees have begun to say to themselves, this might be the one. He might be God's Messiah. But he's partying with them. We're the ones who cleaned up our act so God would like us. And this one who claims to be God's Messiah is partying with tax collectors and prostitutes. What is going on? And for the Pharisees, they can only imagine two possible explanations. By the way, a little spoiler alert, the New Testament is full of Pharisees who converted and became believers in Jesus. We do not want to think that the grace of God does not extend to a Pharisee. It absolutely does. But in this moment, at this point in time, 
the Pharisees, they could only envision two possible explanations of this. Either A, this Jesus is a despicable fraud worthy of death, or B, God has utterly lost his divine mind. There's no other way for them to process these thoughts. And so it is that within a few pages after this happened, they're scheming to kill Jesus. I don't want to leave our imaginary scene too quickly. Take yourself back. Whatever movie you've seen or TV show you've watched, conjure that image up again of wretched, evil men wearing really nice clothes, drinking really nice alcohol, and partying it up. Keep in view all the prostitutes who are hanging all over them with the promise of sex once everyone is drunk enough. And picture your Jesus as the guest of honor. Is that image proving a little unnerving? Hard to accept? Hard to believe? Does the thought of Jesus in the midst of that kind of party ruffle you a little bit? So I want to ask why. Why is it that Jesus in that party is incongruous with our image of him? Why is it that Jesus among that class of people unnerves us? Why are we so ill at ease with our Jesus rubbing shoulders with society's most wretched sinners? It's interesting, we don't generally struggle with Jesus when he's among the poor, materially speaking. But when he's among the poor, spiritually speaking and morally speaking, it's a little hard for us to accept. Jesus is among the evil, among swindlers and cheats and hookers. And he's not just among them, he's at a party with them. So why does that bother us? There are probably several legitimate answers to that. I want to offer one. Despite the good news of the gospel, despite the fact that we live in the New Testament era, we still tend to think in Old Testament terms. We still tend to think in the ways of the Levitical law. Recall our reference to the boundary markers in society, how we use meals to to mark those who belong to a particular group. Well, the whole system was based on the view that contact with the unclean made you unclean. That was the underlying teaching of the book of Leviticus. Thus, by staying within the boundaries of the established people of God, you were likely to stay clean. Stay away from those who worship Moloch, and you're not likely to worship Moloch. Stay away from those who are practicing ritual temple prostitution and you're not likely to practice ritual temple prostitution or even to partake of it. You see, avoiding pork wasn't about avoiding trichinosis. It was about identifying you as one of God's people and keeping you separated from the corrupting influences of the pagan nations. Now, even in the post-Jesus New Testament era, there is still a principle that holds there. 
Paul warns the Corinthians, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. He goes on in his second letter to the Corinthians to remind them that you should come out from among the world, that you are not to live within it as it lives. John warns us not to love the world or the things in the world. You and I are made unclean by contact with the unclean. And that's part of what is making us uneasy about this picture of Jesus at a party with filthy people, tax collectors and sinners. You see, we're sitting there in our heads going, well, then this contaminates Jesus. This sullies him. This marks him. Is Jesus being made unholy, impure, or unclean by his proximity to all these unholy, impure, and unclean people? And that's what the Pharisees were arguing. If this man claims to be God's Messiah, and his teaching and his miracles seem to back him up, if he claims to be the Christ, isn't he defiled by this party? That's the question they're asking in verse 30. Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? We're getting behind the idea that your rabbi, Jesus there, is the Messiah, the promised one. But this, this is completely incongruous with everything we can imagine about God's Messiah. Why do you do it? Look down at that passage, the verses we didn't read, starting in verse 30, uh, um, 33. So to remind you here, so they ask the question, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? They ask the disciples, but Jesus answers. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but you eat and drink. Jesus said to them, can you make a wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. I would love to stop and talk about that. We haven't the time this morning. There's great teaching there, but let's move on to what he says next. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put on into fresh wineskins. I, I hope I'm not insulting your intelligence. Maybe you understand these better than I did, but for years and years and years, those two illustrations made no sense to me about uh, sewing patches on garments and wineskins. You see, we live in a society that's sufficiently affluent. We don't put patches on clothes. We just replace them. And we don't worry about the making of the wine. We just buy it made. So what's going on with these two illustrations? Well, back then, all the fabrics with which they would have worked would have been natural fabrics. Probably wool or linen in that setting. Maybe the wealthy had access to silk. Probably wool or linen. And these natural fabrics, they all shrink as you wash them. So if you take a new piece of cloth, you go down to the local uh, uh, seamstress, you buy from him or you know, her, uh, t- from the tailor, you buy a bolt of cloth, 
and you cut a square out of it to patch a hole on an old garment, here's the problem. The old garment has already shrunk, but the new garment hasn't, the new patch. So you sew it around the hole, and you launder it. Now the new piece of fabric shrinks, and it tears away from the old garment, which had already shrunk. They don't shrink together. And more damage is done than was there before. It's Jesus' way of saying to the Pharisees, get rid of your way of thinking. Throw it out. What I am doing, the truth that I am bringing to you, cannot be uh, quilted into your patchwork. It will ruin everything. The other illustration, new wine was generally not yet fermented, or at least not yet completely fermented. The fermentation process has only just begun. Fermentation produces carbon dioxide gas. And so here it is. You have new leather. New leather has still got some stretch to it, some elasticity to it. The wineskins would be made of goat skin leather. As the wine fermented and CO2 was produced, the skins could stretch. But old wineskins, old leather, will have already stretched to its limit and dried out. You put new wine in there, it produces carbon dioxide, it swells the bag, and instead of stretching, the bag bursts. The bag is ruined, the wine is spilled, and everything is ruined. Again, it's an illustration Jesus is using to them that says, don't try to fill your understanding with what I'm doing. you got to start over again. you got to think about the whole process differently because I have come and changed everything. your Old Testament way of thinking, your Levitical way of thinking, the clean were made unclean by virtue of contact with the unclean. And the only way to be made clean again was to simply wait. There was nothing you could do but wait. If you violated any of the, if you bumped a dead body, if you accidentally touched a person with a disease, um, if you, uh, different bodily fluids were emitted, if you went through any of these that made you unclean, you were instantly made unclean, but there was nothing you could do to instantly make yourself clean. You simply had to wait. Most of the time, it was a seven-day waiting period, sometimes longer. And you just had to trust that at the end of that period, you were clean again. You had to believe God when he said you will be clean at the end of the waiting period. But Jesus comes on the scene, and Jesus offers a way to be made instantly clean. The cleanliness you were waiting for under the Old Testament system, the cleanness that you were waiting for in the book of Leviticus, it's here. I'm it. You see, our text started out with the words, after these things. Well, those things, one of the things that happened in the previous section was Jesus forgave sin. And the Pharisees were scratching their head going, nobody has a right to forgive sin but God himself. And that's where he turns to the the Pharisees. He knows what they're thinking, and he turns to them and says, you tell me, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven Nothing you can do. You can't check it. Nobody has access to God's record book. Nobody can actually verify that I've truly forgiven this man's sins. I can say it. Doesn't make it so. 
That's an easy thing for me to say, your sins are forgiven. Which is easier, for me to say your sins are forgiven or for me to say to this man, take up your mat and walk? And what does he say? He doesn't even wait for their answer. What does he say to them? So that you will know that the Son of Man has the right to forgive sins. So that you will know that I make people clean. So that you know that I am the one who reverses the curse upon this creation. He turns to the man and says, take up your mat and walk. And the man hops up, lame for life. The man hops up, rolls up his mat, and strolls out. It's in the context of that miracle that Jesus is now at this party making people clean. Having called Matthew to be a disciple, he's made Matthew clean. There's no risk of Jesus being contaminated by the filth at this party. There is a good, wonderful possibility that many who are sick at that party will be made clean. Matthew's party is a party of debauchery because that's what his friends do. But Matthew's found the way out. Levi has met the one who can fix it all. Levi knows he's been forgiven. Deep inside all of the guilt for all of the money he's stolen over the years, for all of the prostitutes he's hired to frequent his parties, for all the filth he's been a part of, he says, something's changed about me. And this Jesus changed me. And I want my friends to know about him. And he throws a party and he invites Jesus and Jesus says, I'd be honored to come meet your friends. I'd be honored to be seen with you. I'd be honored to let other sinners be made clean. Who is it that you have been hiding from Jesus? Who in your life are you afraid to bring to church? What if people actually know that I'm friends with them? What if deep down inside, you're really concerned that Jesus may not forgive them? Does Jesus really want in his church a person like that? But it's exactly the point Luke's making here. The reason he includes this account is so you and I will know Jesus does want to be friends with the sinners you know. He is willing to be seen publicly with them. He is happy to have them in his church. Or is it you don't invite because deep down inside you are afraid to stand next to Jesus? You're afraid that you're the wrong kind of person. 
Jesus can't possibly love messed up me. Pastor, you don't understand. I may not party like Levi and his friends, but there are a whole lot of nights I have a private party with my friend Jack Daniels. Jesus doesn't want to be a friend with me. Pastor, you don't understand. I put on a good face in public. I would never throw a party with that kind of debauchery. But in the privacy of my own home, I dial up girls for a good time on my phone. Jesus doesn't want to be seen with one who uses hookers. I can't come to him. Pastor, it's worse than you could imagine because it's, despite my marriage, despite the outward appearance of things, it's not girls I'm looking up on my computer. Jesus wouldn't want to be seen with somebody like that. I cheat at work. I lie to my spouse. Jesus doesn't want to be seen with somebody like that. But if Luke's point is not that Jesus does want to have a relationship with such people, then I don't know what it is. That's the image here of a Jesus who said, Matthew, follow me. Matthew followed. Levi followed. And said, now I want you to meet my friends. And Jesus said, happy to do so would love to be with them. Dear friend, dear sinner, dear closet pornographer, dear secret alcoholic, dear quiet racist, dear silent spendthrift, dear, dear sinner, Jesus came to save you. What did our song say? All you need to do is admit that you need him. That's it. And he will make you clean. He'll take you out of this life of debauchery. Levi doesn't go on to live the rest of his life like this. By the way, I think we'd be foolish to think Levi never fell back into any sin. But eventually, he is pulled out of it. Slowly, gradually, Jesus changes his life. And so now we have before us this table, this invitation to meet with Jesus, to come to him, to actually physically come and dine with him. And as we transition to this table, as we, as we consider our sin and this Savior, it's appropriate that we spend some time confessing those sins. And so in a time of silent prayer right now, confess your sins to Jesus. He knows them already anyway. By confessing them, you get the great confidence that he loves you in spite of them. For the table will still be here when we're done confessing. Let's pray.